Hey, I'm Bradford Young, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? Hey, Ben, I'm doing pretty well. Welcome to the final socially distanced episode of the Cinematography Podcast. Uh, it's all fixed. Everything's better. Gavin Newsom released uh, production guidelines, and we're ready to be not socially distanced and hang out in a room together and maybe even share a, a lollipop or something, right? Whoa. Uh, there's certainly a bunch of people at the bar right down the street from me acting like they're living their best life, having a beer on the sidewalk. I mean... Yeah. It's a pretty amazing, no consequences will come from this. So we are here for part two of the amazing Bradford Young. Really excited to, to bring this. Uh, we'll be picking up kind of where we left off, starting with Arrival and kind of going through some of the other things in his career. And like the first part, I, I just think everyone should listen to this. He's just a, an interesting and profound guy. I wish everyone would go into so much philosophical discussion as Bradford does. It's, it's just really brilliant and inspirational. I think it's worth mentioning, too, that if you've never seen Selma, uh, which, of course, Bradford shot, you can see for free right now on several uh, streaming services. The people behind the movie have decided to make it free right now. So you can, if uh, if you are hearing me speak and Selma is on one of the services out there, chances are that you can see it for free. Let me try to look that up real quick to see and if I can I have find seen it. Selma, but I think I'll watch it again. I, I, I feel like a lot of what's going on is just being uh, so radically recontextualized in my head on the fly. We're really in a different world now than we were, you know, even a month ago. <laughs> like, you know, it, there's so many changes happening and, and I feel like it's kind of forcing people like myself to work harder to keep up. But it's not a bad thing. I'm, I'm glad. I think we're taking care. Hopefully it, it's not something that we take care of it and walk away. It's like we're making a, a societal shift and paying attention to things that we've been kind of sweeping under the rug for a long time. And, and I think uh, Bradford talks a little bit about that in the interview. So uh, we would be remiss if we did not make, as our George Floyd close focus, the new white paper that was released by uh, our governor, Gavin Newsom, on brand new production guidelines, because uh, production is supposedly opening up this week. That's right. Uh, June 12th, it can open up in California, although very important to note that uh, it's only supposed to be in counties that has a stagnant or declining infection rate and the hospitals and ICUs and uh, L.A. County, and I believe Orange County as well, most notably, do not yet meet that guideline. Yeah, I was about to say, so uh, where are we going to? Uh, <laughs> Santa Barbara. Redlands. <laughs> yeah. uh, something like 50 of the 58 counties, I believe, do qualify. But a couple of the major ones, several of the major ones, like Los Angeles, where much of the infrastructure is located, uh, sadly, is not hitting our goals, our numbers. So even if June 12th rolls around, production is not supposed to be happening locally. I don't know if that just means that people go to Ventura County uh, or somewhere else, but... Uh, 
It's, it's, it's kind of a drive if you live in L.A. Yeah, and there was an article that I found a little disturbing that uh, I think dropped on Friday that was about Discovery Networks because they're having all these people make their shows from their houses and how they're saving massive amount of dollars in, in producing television shows more like YouTube content than regular old television shows. And there's a concern amongst people I know who uh, make a living working on those kinds of shows that uh, Discovery is either going to continue making shows that way or they're going to ask the already low-budget shows to drop their budgets even further uh, because they know they can make the stuff basically letting people shoot it on their own phones. And, you know, the question I have is if, uh, you know, Guy Fieri has, like, his son or whatever shooting his show, uh, eventually you're going to have to pay that. You know, like you can probably get away with it for a while, but, uh, you know, will audiences demand a higher quality or are audiences already completely happy with the quality that they're getting from people shooting nationally distributed and syndicated shows from their houses on basically home gear like phones and iPads and stuff? I think about 40 percent. I think there's about 40 percent of people out there who if you took the Academy Award winner for Best Picture any of them in the last five years and put that next to a YouTube video and said, Hey, what do you think looks better? Probably there's 40% of people who go like, I can't tell a the difference. They, they think it all looks the same or they wouldn't know how to describe yeah. what it is. That is different. Well, I think it's usually more, more of the second. It's like people, they, they don't know exactly why it looks different, but I also wonder, you know, uh, and we've talked about it on here before that shows with a studio audience, in my opinion, are probably going to be the last ones to come back. So how long will we be cool with all of our late night comedy shows being like somebody in their living room or their attic or whatever, talking to a camera with no audience laughter in the background and shows like Saturday Night Live also being done on literally home level equipment? I'm wondering if there's going to be um, a return of the laugh track. I'm wondering if that's that's where we're headed. Well, that's what Bill Maher does on his show is he does a monologue and then he literally takes clips of, of, of people laughing from other shows and puts them where the laughs should, would be if he had an I, audience. I have not seen that yet, so, um, so I missed that one. Laugh tracks, in, in general, I usually uh, despise, although I got to admit that I showed my kids an episode of the Flintstones the other day and it was almost like, you know, a, a science experiment. Here's something from the 60s, you know, uh, what do you think of this? And they did <laughs> laugh a couple of times, although it was a little bit awkward and they kept going like, what's with all the laugh what why is there laughter like like they they're not used to hearing or seeing shows with laugh tracks so it was like i had to explain what that was it's, it's always weird when i was when i was a kid i would watch love boat and wonder where the audience was if they're looking off the the ship into the nothingness of the ocean was the audience just sitting in a bunch of uh you know uh inner tubes floating out in the ocean back to the to the white yes, paper back though. To the white paper. um we can include in our show notes a link to the full white paper so people can read everything about it but i don't really think any of it will be that surprising it's about 22 pages long and it goes into a bit of detail about things like diagnostic testing and, and dealing with the individual departments and uh, personnel equipment and stuff like that, physical distancing. They even go into working in writer's rooms, and there's a lot of really interesting information. Another question, or, or maybe we should just start a betting pool, is when some random show, I'm not calling them out specifically, but let's say NCIS, some grip ends up with COVID-19 and spreads it to two people on the crew. Does the whole industry shut down again? Uh, what's what's you know, going to happen? The, the white paper, which is actually incredibly colorful and 
has only <laughs> it's not white at all it's not not as advertised no. yeah it's 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 very very well designed whoever did yes, the layout it, it, it's a work, mwah, work of art great work. yes Perfect. it definitely uh, reflects yeah. the creative uh, and design aesthetics of this industry <laughs> well <laughs> one of the things it lists on here actually uh, just to jump back to it real quick before we talk about what happens they do say there's now going to be a covid 19 compliance officer of some sort there's going to be a person whose job it is to make sure that the crew that the cast that production is adhering to these guidelines the document is extremely short on details for exactly exactly like what you're talking about what happens if someone but that can't i mean i believe that for network television or you know big tv shows with a real budget but when you get into smaller reality shows are they really going to send someone out on uh, on a shoot of house hunters to be the the covid <laughs> compliance officer when when the entire crew is like four people no uh i no i I really don't think so i have a feeling (laughs) though that like it says here that uh if someone does if someone does come down with it they do list like okay well they they're not going to be fired they have like a certain amount of you know of time there's not going to be anything anything penalizing them for coming forward and saying that they're they're positive and that they can't work but the document is extremely short on ramifications or exactly how certain programs would be put into effect like who like says that the covid 19 compliance officer would be trained it doesn't say what that training is or you know it doesn't say it doesn't say anything any of the real details also i get that like if uh let's say you're a wardrobe pa and uh you you wake up and you have the symptoms of covid 19 you call in and you're not going to get fired for not going in but if you're let's say the star of the show or the director or the dp I mean, the, the DP on a, on a network show, maybe there are two DPs, so somebody else can jump in and maybe cover you, maybe. Uh, director, not an easy thing to do at all. Star would just shut the show down. Yeah. Completely. Most likely, yes. And so, you know, I really wonder about how that's going to impact stuff. On the, um, I was listening to the Script Notes podcast, which I've probably talked about on here a thousand times, and they had a director on there who was in the middle of making a movie when COVID got shut down. And he said that basically as they're gearing back up and trying to figure out how they're going to finish the movie that he's already shot half of, that they're trying to add one day for every five days. So basically they're inflating their schedule by 20% for all of the safety and compliance. And I also assume that they're like, we have to be prepared if, if an actor ends up sick, you know? I got to imagine that everything's going to take much, much longer and they do make some statements and I'd have to go through here to find the exact wording, but it says something like, you know, days and hours should be as reasonable as possible or short as possible or something like that, but it's production. And just by the the mere fact that there's always at some point someone running around for something, someone has to get something and now you're going to be doing it in a mask, which is going to be harder. And now, now, you know, at least around here summertime in los angeles is hot and uh nothing about the new requirements for masks and things help you work outside when it's hot i mean it's gonna, you're going to be hotter so the, it, it's dense but at the same time it, it lacks some of the specifics and uh the, the industry that you know the groups that were consulted and put it all together um they say it's it's a way to start a conversation or negotiation with you know with so well, that makes sense i mean i feel like you have to start somewhere and you have to i mean in my opinion start by being completely prudish about everything and locking everything down and and giving people very little wiggle room and then slowly experiment with okay we can try this we can try that you know whatever but i think that you know we're gonna we're gonna see a moratorium on uh, on crowd scenes on scenes with lots of extras i i bet vfx companies that can do like virtual extras probably be a little busy 
And I think that a lot of work is just going to be going going home. A friend of mine who is a showrunner has been running a virtual writer's room for like the last couple of months as they write this show, uh, the show he's working on. And, you know, I think that some of those things are probably going to stick around. But, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. And I really do like I'm I'm kind of bracing. I keep thinking about the pornography industry and how if one person comes down with an HIV infection, they just shut the whole business down and test everybody. And I wonder if it's going to be like that. Like if one random crew person on one TV show or one movie comes down with COVID-19, like certainly that whole show I'm assuming is going to get shut down. Um, I, th- I think it's going to be a wait and see. And we, we don't know what's going to happen. And yeah, um, yeah don't don't know what the result's going to be. So wait and see. Uh, but uh, all I can say is I'm happy that I'm not going back to work immediately because the thing I'm working is at the writing stage right now. All right. So I know you and I both are uh, very excited to see how this implementation happens and how we're able to get back to work safely. Obviously, we both want to get back to work and we want the the industry to get back to work and we both have a vested interest in it. But, um, you know, my default position is always uh, let's not kill anyone. Um, <laughs> that's a good default. Yeah, yeah that's a good default is let's let's not be risk. Yeah, not there, there, there are, are zero deaths worth whatever goofy movie projects I've ever wanted to do. Zero deaths are worth it. We've all worked on that movie where it was like not safety first, maybe not even safety second. It was more yeah. like safety third, safety third. <laughs> but um, I've seen a couple the, of 12K lights go down in a heavy wind that when they weren't tied oh. down especially well. Yeah, it's happened. Uh, well, on this one in particular, I don't think we can really afford to be safety third. I think it, no, we really no. have to I think that we have, right. we have to start uh, that way. Anyway, that is plenty on that, and I am very excited to see how we move into the post, I'm not going to say post-COVID, the inter-COVID period of filmmaking, which uh, starts in a few weeks here or this week here and lasts until we're all vaccinated. But uh, let's get back to that interview with Bradford Young. Here is the conclusion of our two-part interview with Bradford Young. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about Arrival because, you know, that is like several orders of magnitude in scope larger than than your previous films. Although Selma is a period piece and so there's a lot of a lot of stuff that has to be done, but so much of Arrival is visual effects dealing with, you know, shooting all these scenes uh, where Amy Adams is trying to talk to these aliens, having an understanding of linguistics. There's a linguistics podcast I love that actually t- did a whole episode about Arrival because they were so excited oh, wow. okay. that a movie oh, a movie got made about uh yeah, it's called Lexicon Valley if you ever get a chance it's a great podcast okay i will i will yeah yeah, Um, totally anyway talk about like tackling that subject matter because i feel like there's a lot of swings and a lot of misses at uh at a modern day science fiction kind of a story and that is one that to me that was just like a home run right i mean like the second that movie started as a viewer i just knew that i was going to love every second of that movie it was it was it was so beautifully captured and so emotional and i think that that's sometimes what a lot of science fiction misses is kind of the personal connection to the story and uh, in talking to you i'm starting to understand where that's coming from so can you talk a little bit about how that how you found your way onto that film right well i think also you know one of the things you got to start with is the great science fiction linguist writer of our time ted chiang who wrote story of your life which is what the short story you know the eric script was based on that short story and the the humanity of it you see it's about it's <laughs> science fiction films have classically this is some film history thing coming out. I'm going, you know, and I hope, I hope 
I want to be wrong in some ways, but I also feel like I'm right in this way, is that science fiction <laughs> films of off the perspective is never there. We don't know whose story it is. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't know who, what are we experiencing. You know, 2001, the greatest science fiction film, arguably of all times. We, where, who are we? You know what I mean? Like we still have to ask the primary question at the end of the day: Who are we? Whose story is this? It's a good vision. It's a good thing to observe and bear witness to. But if I break it down into where are we? Who are we? I'm, it's, I think it would be a great healthy debate for us to have. Is like whose story is that? This is what made Arrival special. Is that is. If it's the if it's the alien story, fine. Then that's how we should observe the story. And I don't mean that just in terms of optics, but I mean also in terms of the story itself. But specifically because I'm a cinematographer, talking about optics, like if it's the alien story, what does it look like? What does it feel like? Is this story? Is, or, or is the camera the story? Is the is the camera the object of the story? Or is the camera observing the story? Like with those questions about where the camera is to bear witness to the story are really important things that I think Arrival tried to tackle, which is this is a story led by a woman. This woman is going to take us, this is a person that's going to take us on this journey. That camera, I feel like that's one of the successes about the aesthetic execution of that film is that the film grammar, the film language, is that that film is always with Louise. It's always mm-hmm. with her. Every step of the way, we never, we're either watching her, however we watch it, we're always watching her. It's always about her. You know what I mean? It's always about her reaction to or her response to these things that we see with her, right? Camera behind her, seeing those things in front of her. In scope, we bear witness to it in the same size, the same scope as she would bear witness to it. And then we get a, a wonderful Joe Walker, Denise cut of seeing her face responding to it in the same way that we might respond to it. Same portion, same size, same intimacy, portraiture. These are all things that science fiction films don't necessarily have to adhere to if we're honoring genre because they're about an experience, about the, the awe of exploring the unknown. But this film is this film is literally about, as Denis would say, it's just about the Tuesday morning that you woke up and aliens came. It's like now looking out my window, now it's just old cloudy, slightly muggy day in Baltimore. You know, and I'm sitting here talking to you guys doing a podcast and I look out the window and a, and a big pumice stone. <laughs> comes out of the, comes out, comes out of the sky lands in your film and that's kind of what arrival was supposed to be about it's supposed to be about the sort of mundane life of a melancholy intellectual who's dealing with some unknown loss there's some energy on her that's suffocating her you know and it's sitting on her strong and we see that in the first scenes and we don't even understand what it is because it's not it's not part of the story yet and then aliens show up like and it's almost like what are y'all doing here that's literally what the film is about like why are you here <laughs> And and then somebody says, can you go ask them and ask them why they're here? And you have to go ask them why they're here. And you realize they came to tell you something. I mean, that is beyond genre, is beyond the tropes. You have to be, you have to figure it out at that point because you are exploring territory that is explored in literature, is exhausted in literature, but it's not necessarily a thing that's been exhausted in film. And so, you know, you have your beautiful versions of that that are slightly less sci-fi, like the Alphavilles or... You know, you can go on and on the 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 Solaris's of the world. You have all those great science fiction films that are also not adhering to the rules, you know. And so this is a great nod to that. And and for it was about perspective. It was about perspective and it was about keeping the human experience at the center of the film. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's not about the alloys. It's not about the, the foreign materials that the aliens may be making or us speculating on what their planet is about. It wasn't about that. It was about our planet. It's about focusing on our planet and the fact that that dilemma of that extraterrestrial life may have to come to us and enlighten us and give us the knowledge of ourselves in order for us to move to the next iteration of humanity. 
that's really troubling. That's also very intimidating and deeply problematic. But that's what the that's the kind of conversations that I thought the film would would want to generate. Not not as the film, not as the director, because I wasn't the director, but as the person who was reading the script. You know, saying to myself, "Wow!" Not in reading the script, not being the cinematographer, but just being a person who was just loving the writing. Saying, wow, this this can drop some really interesting questions about who's going to save us, who's going to give us the answers. We clearly don't have the answers for ourselves because we keep suffering. But maybe somebody else will come and, you know, something or someone or the thing will come and surrender us from our pain and our suffering. And that, I think that's why the film is so unexpected, because it, it keeps humanity in it. It keeps humanity anchored. And all those, the ship is so far away. It's so It just plays itself out in the background, you know? Yeah. And when you go inside the ship, it's not about the texture of the walls or the amazement of the walls. It is for like one shot. And then the rest of it is just about breaking down the language and the relationship between her and this, these extraterrestrial beings. You know? And how, if, if you're to pitch that idea of like trying to decode a language, it's not the most visual thing to think about. So how did you approach making it so involving in a visual way? Well, I don't feel like I did a really good, knowingly did a good job about helping unpack the language part of the story visually. At least when I was doing it, I was not aware. And actually, it was something I was very self-conscious about that Mm -hmm. Patrice and Patrice, our incredible production designer, and Denis were very focused on decoding the language. And that those shots or those moments where the language was being decoded they had to be very there had to be certain things happening on the screen that made it really clear to the audience because it's a very very layered complicated esoteric thing that's happening on in in the storytelling that you know f- the audience has to understand what's happening it can't just be we assume that they got the land it had to be shots it had to be really clear <laughs> yeah. now those shots that where that happened happens inside of the tent where where uh louise and um I forgot Jeremy Renner's uh, character's name, where they are writing on the wall and the, the writing on the clear acetate surface that divides their their offices from one side, because it's a flipped mirrored image, one side says one thing going left to right, but on the other side going right to left, it says something else. Like those things felt like very procedural sort of didactic shots. You have to see the characters contemplating face, da, 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 and then you see the shot of them drawing it out and then you get the 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 hitch that it was a flip it was flipped right and so those felt very clear to me and they felt clear to me because they were very procedural but the undercurrent of that language the conversation around language and the approach of shooting the film to me I think is the one thing that I never really got in tune with and mm-hmm. I think that if there's a failing if there's a failing or a total imperfection in my own process in making that film is that I didn't invest enough time in understanding the connection between the visual language of the film and the the language in the film. Now, when I was making it, I felt like I dropped the ball. But when I watched the film, which is a testament to the collaboration and the masterful work of Joe Walker and Denis, is that that film had needed many, many, many parts, many people involved in order to decode the language of the film, right? Mm-hmm. The film has a particular grammar that's mirrored, that's, and it's a film about language. They found... Two things happened. They found the language, which then made me see that, oh, I was actually doing stuff in the film unknowingly. I was doing stuff <laughs> in the film that is is part of a continuity of language. It's broken. It's fractured. That's what language is. It's, it has harmonics. It has frequencies. It goes up and down. But there's a language. And then I started seeing things like that I forgot that we did. You know what I mean? Like 
the structure of a building, the lines of a building mirrored inside the ship or the way we reveal those lines and come into this, mm. these optics, these, these, these oculus things in the frame, the windows in her house looking out into the lake, the wind, looking out the windows of, her, of the, uh, the building that's very brutalist and has these same shapes that are inside the ship, looking out to her walking across the campus alone, you know, or uh, the oculus in her house is the same oculus looking into the aliens and vice versa. It's like all these sort of structural things that, again, I didn't have very clear answers, but Patrice was very clear. Denis was very clear. So my, my lack of clarity got picked up by the other collaborators and carry it throughout the rest of the film. And I think when you see the film, it's a sum of, it's a means to an end. You're, you're being modest. Yeah. You're being modest right now. Because, I mean, <laughs> no. frankly, I mean, between you and Denis and Joe, who's also been nominated for multiple Academy Awards for something, you have an incredible team here that put together a really visual movie. And, uh, and, and taking nothing away from Linus or Rodrigo or anyone else nominated that year, I mean, the, the, the work in Arrival is stunning. It is so stunning and feels so coherent from beginning to end. It doesn't feel like there's a single insert out of place. And you really feel that in some movies where you go like, oh, that's a beautiful shot. And now here's this kind of w- like wanky insert. Every single right. shot in Arrival <laughs> is so well constructed and put together. It, it feels so coherent. It's, it's incredible. I mean, it's like it's it's a visual extravaganza and the story works. And usually those are things that don't happen in science fiction, at least on regularity, to create a personal story. And even if you say that you weren't into the linguistics, you were definitely into making the story personal. And you really do feel Louise's story. And, you know, Jeremy Renner's Ian and stuff is, is a major part of her story as well, too. But it's like, yeah, it's a, you did a great job of making that feel like this is an intimate story with this gigantic, gigantic scope. Right. No one can well, ever you know, say scope. Let me tell you, the scope of that is massive. You know, this is, this is interesting. I'm glad you said that. This is interesting because this is the nature of collaboration. We all bring what we can to the table. And it's our job as community members in the collaboration to pull each other over the finish line. You know what I mean? Like, I see you falling. I'm going to pick you up and pull you over. You mm-hmm. know, and that, and that, that's not one person only does that. So everybody's doing that to each other. And I think if you see anything in that film, because, like, honestly, when you think about it, it's not necessarily the, like, perfect landscape for the most visual film. You see what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because it's so Absolutely. procedural. Yeah. And it's, it's so organically procedural because, of the, because you have to get the audience to understand this language thing. So you're going to spend a lot of time just making shots about the symbols making sense to the audience and the words coming out of the actor's mouth, the symbols, those two things together making sense for the, okay, now I understand. Well, it's hard to make exposition as engaging as that is. As engaging. And and it reminds me of uh, Jakob Ire, who we had on the show as well, who did Chernobyl, Mm. has that that sequence at the end of Chernobyl where they explain how a nuclear reactor works for like 15 minutes, and I was on the edge of my seat. And uh, and it's really (laughs) hard to, to do something that is, again, just like you're saying, procedural, but also like... Uh, you know, we're not we're not PhDs in linguistics, so you have to get us caught up to as intelligent as these people are supposed to be, and without it looking like you're talking down to us or whatever as filmmakers. So to me, like getting these complex fucking ideas across, that's a, a humongous challenge, and it and it you guys made it look very easy. Yeah, but it was hard. It was hard. But I mean, the <laughs> fact that I guess what I'm saying is that the fact that the film was so vid the fact that the film that had a vision it had it did it did have a visual language the fact that it had that is a testament to the fact that we number one Denis is an extremely visual director and the fact that none of us were willing to let that go mm-hmm. 
in, in order to, and, you know, and it's everybody. That's, you know, I'm talking about the main collaborators, Renee April, custom designer, Denis Veneuve at the top, our director, Patrice Vermette, our production designer, Joe Walker, our editor, and our producers. None of us were willing to let the visuals, the vision of the film, play a background role or play the background compared to the actors of the story. It was, we knew that all of it had to be in harmony with one another. And you, you couldn't say, ah, this is not a visual film. This is not a film where people are going to care about cinematography. It's just not true. It's not true, you know? They, and I think they all, you know, that if that was the case, Denis would have gone to, you know, somebody different, you know? All right, we've been, we've been talking for a, a while now. I, I mean, I could probably spend another hour talking about Arrival, but we should probably talk about uh, Solo. Solo, so, is yeah. a, I mean, yeah, you, you, you shot a Star Wars movie. And in my opinion, one of the best Star Wars movies, actually, uh, oh. of, of a recent time. And I know that makes me maybe unpopular with some of like the hardcore people out there, but I know a lot of people who really do love Solo. And I think Solo is a, is a, is a great movie that stands on its, on its own. And there was a lot of uh, turmoil going into Solo. Solo was, uh, was probably not the easiest shoot you've ever done. You want to yeah. tell us a little bit about your, your experience on Solo? Hey, there was none, none of the films that I've done before added up to Star Wars. Like, I didn't see the connection. <laughs> But I, in my mind, I just was like, I don't see how this is going to make sense. But, you know, just that's Lucasfilms, though. You know what I mean? They they do it right. Um, I say that. They do it right. But uh, I was convinced that by many people, people in the community, Ali Shermer, Simon Emanuel, I was convinced that there was a spot for me and that whatever this script was going to be, which at the point at the time, you know, when you, when you take a star Wars film, you don't, you don't, you don't get a script and say, okay, let me, you know, it's no script. There's no script yet. <laughs> it's not, there's not, there's a script, but you're not, you're not looking at the script to make the decision. You're going to make a star Wars film. You know yeah. what I mean? You're agreeing to make whatever this thing is with star Wars on it. And so that's well, how, enough. How don't you want to do that? to you? Like uh, when you were first uh, coming into your own as a filmmaker, how important were the Star Wars movies? Like if you were to do a quiz at my film school, virtually everyone would have said, I wanted to make a movie. I wanted to be a filmmaker because I saw Star Wars. How important was that to you? They weren't important at all. Yeah. Not at all. <laughs> Not important at all. Didn't care about them at all. Hadn't seen one in over 20 something years because oh, wow. I had lost my, I had lost my appetite for those kinds of films. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Like I wasn't watching them. And so to be working on one, you know, you know what happened? You know what happened? I asked a lot of people in my community and people were like, yeah, go do that. That's like a power move for all of us. You know, there were so many iterations of why I should do it. And also too, it was just like, it was going to be cool. It was going to be scope and big, something I've never done before. And that was uh, the, the more, and the more I interrogated and I finally got there, I realized, <laughs> yeah, I should do this. This is going to be, this is going to be fun. Right. But I'm trying to tell you, man, the fact that I went, once I, once I decided I was going to do it, or I was just about to decide I was going to do it, I went and watched Empire Strikes Back. So of course, of course you're like, oh, this is, this is a movie. This is, this is artistry, right? But I'm trying to tell you, man, I have so much respect for Chris Menjis. I have so much respect for him. He's one of the reasons why I want to be a film, a cinematographer, that he validated, he gave, he, 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 he asserted something to me. And, and I didn't meet him, I met him during the film, filming, but just, I just feel like I know his work so well. It's just one of those cats that I just really admire. But the fact that he worked on Empire Strikes Back was like, it meant a lot. It meant to lie. It was like, oh, Chris Mingus is not, he's not neutral. He's a very particular kind of cinematographer that works with very particular kind of directors. Like mm -hmm. Ken Loach is not, doesn't play around. These guys don't play around. You know, Jim Sheridan, they don't play around. And so the fact that some of those cats went and made a Star Wars for me made it feel like I something I should, you know what I mean? It just makes it easier to justify it in your head. Like, yeah. well, Chris Mingus did one, so, well, you know what I mean? So I think that meant a lot to me, you know? That meant a lot to me. And, uh, 
also too, you know, go to go to England and make a film at Pinewood. That just <laughs> I went. I took my I took my family there to just kind of go check it out, and see it. It was in June, and they were doing pickups with Rose, and it was they were working on episode eight. Yeah, walking around Pinewood was just man, it was crazy. I couldn't believe I was there. <laughs> a lot of history there. That's crazy. A lot of history there, and you know, then you develop. Then I developed an appetite again because then it wasn't really about the movies themselves. It was about how much the creature department just like masterful. Who are these people? These are people that these are unlike me. These are people that's 15, 14, 13. They knew exactly they were going to be puppeteers in the creature department at Pinewood. <laughs> for Lucasfilms <laughs> working on Star Wars. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you can see that in people's eyes. You can see it in their eyes, you know? And so that just felt like when I went to visit, I felt like I'm at home. I'm at home. Not that it has anything to do about the film. I'm at home because I'm here with real craftspeople, real craftspeople. And it, I'm, I know this is kind of romantic, romanticized a little bit, but nothing hits you like that more than when you're in London, you're in England and you're in Pinewood and you're watching all those craftspeople really chopping away at things. It just made me feel like I belong. Yeah, it was perfect. It was made sense. One of one of the best decisions I made ever. You know? So notoriously, uh, or I shouldn't say notoriously, but famously, famously, that movie was started was shot a certain percentage of it, and then the directors who were who were directing it up until that point left the project, and Ron Howard came on, reshot parts of it, and they and they finished the movie. What was it like working with two sets of directors on the same project? <sighs> <clears throat> well, I was definitely ill-equipped. <laughs> <laughs> well, who, who, would, who, would be, who would be properly equipped to... to right, to right, right. That? Nobody. Nobody. To, Nobody's ready for nobody. that. Nobody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was clear I wasn't, you know? And uh, yeah, we had to revisit. You have to have a discussion. Like Ron and I, you know, listen, Ron Howard is a vet, you know, 60 yeah. years in the industry. Been working since he was three years old at that time. Now he's much, more, much older, but... The time he was 63, he said, "Man, I've been working in films since I was three. It's like, wow, he's got to make a film for six. And then you start to remember, like, oh man, Ron Howard made Cocoon. He made Cocoon. Yeah. <laughs> Ron Howard made Cocoon. Ron Howard made Willow. Yeah. See, now I'm going back to that. Mom, going back to that. That person, that part of me that I thought I'd like thrown under the bed. Now I'm back in there. Like, oh, okay, no, Ron Howard is a Ron Howard is not a joke. He's a serious filmmaker. This guy." Makes. And and never forget that Ron is visual. He's always on the cutting edge. I mean, anybody. He went to get Anthony Diamant. I mean, come on. He's. I mean, he worked with Anthony. So it's just like you're not. You're not never gonna be on the cutting edge if you're with Anthony. And so I had a lot of like, you fired the directors I came in with, and now I got to work with somebody that I don't know. But all that got solved early because Ron's a professional, mm-hmm. and he said, you know, and he's a vet, and he said to me, "You want to continue doing this?" Yeah, I want I, I want to be here, and he's like, I want you to be here because I like what you're doing, you know. And that's like that's that nurturing thing your elders bring to you that knowledge, those things that you know. I I was coming in from a from a generational perspective yeah. that didn't need that was that wasn't applicable, and he he dearmed sort of sort of dearmed the situation really quickly. And uh, and he said, but if you're gonna come and do it, we're gonna do it together. These things need to happen, and he laid it out, and they were real. They were they were things that would have played out well in the version of the film that Chris and Phil were going to make, but weren't going to play out well in the version of the film that he was going to make. And so I had to be on board with that. And, uh, you know, I trust, you know, it's really, then it becomes down, it comes down to trust. Like I trust Ron Howard was going to make a film. Now I think it wasn't ideal for anybody, nobody. It wasn't ideal for Lucasfilms. It wasn't ideal for Ron. It wasn't ideal for Chris and Phil. But what I will say specifically for Ron, I know 
that it was not ideal for Ron because Ron didn't have the time to prep the film. So there were many days when he and I have three or four cameras, which was just like, I have, once you go past one camera, I'm lost anyway. Mm-hmm. So when there's three or four cameras shooting the scene, the other three cameras, I have trusted <laughs> camera operators. I said, get good frames. I'm only looking at one camera, a camera. I believe the rest of the cameras will get what they need to get. But um, there were days when he and I looked at each other, many days, we looked at each other like, man, this is what we're in. You know what I mean? This is the war we're in. We got to put four <laughs> cameras on the scene and neither one of us want four cameras on the scene. You know what I mean? And, that, yeah. and those are those moments where you realize that like this cat, this cat's got taste. Like he knows he, this cat has taste. He's not just throwing a bunch of cameras in there just to get the day over with because he wants to go have lunch or have dinner. He's, he's doing it because he's got to get it done. And so we, at least we had each other. You know, at least we had each other. And at least it was that thing of, well, we're going to put four cameras on it. I know that Ron sees that only about 0.02% of C cameras actually going to get used. I trust that. The rest of that stuff doesn't work at all. And he saw it and we saw it together. And I think he, he could rest in the fact that if I put four cameras on it, at least the lighting here makes the four cameras look kind of interesting. You know what I'm saying? And so that, and it was always, you know, what, shot, what, shot, what side should all the cameras go on? I love that. He's looking too, like, oh, there goes the back. Like, all the cameras need to come on this side. That's that's an, that's great. You know what I mean? So when it, you know, a lot of things I wasn't comfortable with, he made me real comfortable with, you know? And that was because he knew that I was inexperienced in so many ways, but knew that I was, but I had done so much with the Chris and Phil that I had a vision in my head as a cinematographer. And he saw that in the footage that we could do this together. So it was difficult because I really, really, really appreciate Chris and Phil. I really love working with them because they were just, they just had a very special vision. They had a very, they, were, they had their thing. Um, and it took a lot, it took a, it took a while for me to make sense of the fact that they weren't there anymore. Well, you kind of said it's at the beginning of this conversation that like when you're going in one direction, it's hard for you to turn around and go in another. And immediately that made me yeah. think about this because clearly what, you were working on one collaborative path and then you, you switched the path, but you know, you managed, it. but it, it all looks, you know, like the, the movie, if I didn't know that that had happened when I saw the movie, like, you know, the whole thing tracks, the whole thing holds together. There isn't a tonal shift. There isn't a shift in the look. Like, like, I feel like it's it's seamless. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cohesive I mean, Ilya thing. said it earlier. It's the resilience that Ilya was talking about. It's the resilience. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It was just the resilience. It's like, now I can talk about resilience because I was a little older, but it was that fact. It was the thing that it was like, I'm going to stay on this film. I'm not going to leave with the directors. I'm actually going to stay. And mm-hmm. I'm going to stay for a different, a many, many reasons, you know, but I'm going to stay and I'm going to, I'm going to finish this. And uh, you got to be an adult about it, you know, and uh, really say, I'm going to finish it. And I'm going to do it. And I'm going to tell them when I don't like certain things. And then, and then I'm going to make comp- logical compromises. Then I'm going to make compromises I don't agree with, but I got to do it for the sake of the film. And that, that's a big, that was a, a, le- a big lesson. Um, Ron Howard's kind of known, and I, I've mentioned it on the podcast before that I've worked for Ron Howard myself. Uh, but he's he's known for being like an amazing collaborator. In that, uh, one of the stories that I remember hearing about him was on Apollo thirteen. His policy with the visual effects department was if someone presented an idea to him and he had his own idea that was different, and he thought they were about the same, he'd go with the other person's idea because he knew they would work twelve twelve times harder on it to to get their idea yeah. to work. Yeah, man. Can you Prefer talk about mind. about like what what he is like as a collaborator? That's so funny. It's so funny you use that example, like because that's him. That just that kind of defines him. That that really spells out what he's about, man. It's like he his whole thing is I have this idea. That's my idea. Anybody got, else got any ideas? Can we make it better? Oh, that's a better idea. Now nah, I, I like that. Let's do that. There's, yeah. Or it's like no, nah, that doesn't work. Let's stick with this. That is. 
that's a, I can only imagine as a director, that's a really, you got to get to that place. You got to be, you got to have made all the films that Ron has made to get mm-hmm. to that place where you realize that everybody in the room is offering up what they're offering up because they're invested in your story. They really want to, they really believe in what you've put down on the page. I never had any fear. I never had any sort of apprehension or misguided energy around asking him or telling him, asking him for something or asking him to change an idea or telling him that I just didn't like his idea. You know what I mean? Like I didn't, didn't work, for, doesn't work for me. You know what I mean? I never felt like, even when those things come up in the heat of, we gotta go, we gotta go to go. And you're like, what is that? Now doesn't make sense. Hold on, stop, stop. Let's make, you know, I never felt like I had to like walk on eggshells. It was like, he saw, if he ever saw me doing that, if it, cause it happens rarely or it happened rarely, he knew that I was doing it because there was something, there was a disconnect between the photography and the story. I'm missing something. What am I missing here? I remember uh, there was some shot that we were trying to get. We were shooting on top of the train. And you know, those are those days where I'm sitting in a blue volume and with, with, a, with, a, with a fake train buck. And it's like one angle we're working on for half a day. You know, you get two shots in those days, which is kind of fun. But then also the same time, you're just like, what's going on? So, you know, this is an angle where Woody, Woody's, some, something swings down, I think it was a hook, and Woody's supposed to grab the hook and hook it to the, to the train. And we kept, something wasn't working, something wasn't working. I was watching, and I was watching, and I was watching. It was like, I was watching Ron Howard trying to get this thing together. And it was working, but it was like one thing missing. And I was like, well, maybe I should just ask, like, what's supposed to happen here? You know what I mean? Like, because you you, when you're making these big films, you get in that mode, it's just like, he just has to hook it. But yeah. then you still have to be like, well, what's happening, though? Like, why are we, what's the thing? And so I just said, well... What are we doing here? And he was like, we got to hook the thing. And I was like, well, let's just do this. And I could have said it 30 minutes before, but I didn't. You know what I mean? (laughs) And I kind of killed the energy. I walked into the space like I had the answer because I definitely came in with that kind of vibe, which I would not intended to. But, you know, you're looking at something you really feel passionate about. You come Sometimes that vibe is there. I came in to make the suggestion and he didn't look at me to say, why weren't you here a half hour ago, though? I should have been there half hour ago to say it. And he didn't, um, he didn't, he saw it, he saw it for what it was worth and took it and ran. And we, we used it and, and it worked or may not have worked. I don't remember, but it was that, that feeling of being able to come in the middle of the conversation and say, I think you should just do this and let's see what happens. And be like, okay, we've got all this momentum going. Let's, yeah, let's stop and actually try that out because right now we're spinning. We need a new idea and that's, a, that's let's try this idea. That's fine. Mm-hmm. And that takes, again, again, that takes a lot of uh, maturity and knowledge and wisdom in order to be able to adapt to those kinds of situations. And when you sometimes when you're working with younger directors or you're working with directors who are of a particular sort of cloth, those things aren't always taken this that way. You know, um, you have to be very careful because you have to also create a certain level of security and trust for people. So sometimes you can't breach. You got you to be careful how you breach that. And I think mm-hmm. those things are made to be breached, but you got to breach them in the right way. And with Ron, it was, there was definitely a right way, but it never felt intimidating. It always felt warm. It always felt like it was welcome. And if, it, if he didn't want it, he didn't have to take it. He'll tell you, no, nah, it doesn't work for me. I'm going to do this. And it was like, right. And you knew that was <laughs> going to work too, but you just felt, felt very open, very, um, very generous, very egalitarian. One of the nicest guys. One of the nicest guys. Yeah, that was, that was honestly my experience with him as well. And the project I worked on with him, we, I was editing an animatic for him, and he was working with a bunch of storyboard artists. And he said the first day that we were working together, hey, I love I love a shot like in a Spielberg movie where someone sits in a, in a shot and you or someone stands up or the camera pans over something and you realize the shot was not what you thought it was. And then he said, but I'm not great at coming up with those ideas. So if you guys could pitch those ideas in the boards, I would really appreciate it. And I, and I kept thinking, like, how would 10 other directors have asked you to do that? You know, to acknowledge a shortcoming, all of us admire him and his work. 
all of us want to make him happy and and to understand that he he basically just gave us the power to be creative for him and right. and everyone was really kind of touched by that right right no that's 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 yeah that's ron man that's that's very much him very nice generous i mean it's great when you work with like you're working with a spike jones or you're working with an alejandro and you read to or you're working with the yeah denis Villeneuve, or you're working with a jc shandor are you working with an Ava DuVernay? Are you working with a D. Reese? Are you working with Kath, you know, Catherine Bigelow or whatever? You're working with these folks and then you, Ron's name comes up. And not one of those those artists that I just mentioned who we have a very particular idea about who they are and what they are. We have this idea about who Ron is. The one thing that all of them across the board, they respect Ron because they mm-hmm. know Ron is an artist, man. He's an artist. You know what I mean? This cat is nobody's going to say he. this guy tries to do something special every time you know yeah. what i mean and to, even he admits you know it didn't work he's which was also love about him he's like oh, that film i made don't watch it this that's not no, that's not i, 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 I want to tell you the, i want to tell you the story about this film i made but don't don't watch it but it didn't really work i mean that for me is like the self-awareness too is amazing you know he's just a great cat well uh great before cat. we go i want to talk about when they see us because that's also like a move into uh, more more long form work for you, and it's also a return to working with Ava DuVernay. So the two of you had gone off and and uh, made lots of larger things, and then you came back together to work on that project. What was it like, kind of getting back to work with her? And also, I mean, like I I can imagine what the what the connection was, but you know, like with with that and with Selma, you're telling a story that. People like me have heard these stories, but you're you're creating a visual imprint that's going to like live with me after I, you know, it, it's it's a way to create empathy uh, for somebody else uh, in these stories. And 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 uh, when they see us is um, a lot more modern and a lot more uh, er, honestly very urgent uh, given the circumstances of the world today. What was it like getting getting back together with her and working on something like that? Well, you know, we had, we hadn't made a film together. We missed a film together, and you know, we all and we both made things apart from one another. And so, this is the first time back together in a long time. I'll say this about when they see us. You know, it's long form. We needed five times the amount of days that we had. It's an ensemble cast. It's for Netflix, which I'm not saying it means anything else other than it's you know, it's, it's it, I'm building up the story just to yeah. say that. It's not episodic, but it's kind of episodic. And people have a different notion about how those things should look and feel. We're also in like the episodic industrial complex right now. So it's just a lot of that kind of stuff in form out. I've never heard it's anyone great. say that. That's, that's brilliant. <laughs> it's, it's, so we're, we're in the middle of that. And I think the thing that when we all look at those films or we look at these episodic or these multi multiple part pieces, films, the thing that we all are kind of connected to but also repels us a little bit is that we're working in a time where we want things to happen in the same time frame but we want all the artistic acumen to be there at the same time mm-hmm. and artistic acumen and time have a relationship a real deep intimate love affair time <laughs> there's never enough time but you gotta have but when you give us the time there's gotta be enough time and I'll say that we had the time that we needed and we had enough time. But for that story, everybody knows from Netflix all the way down to Ava, down to a PA, across, I shouldn't say down, across to a PA, that we didn't have enough time to make that film. And we were doing 
a multiple part series. So it's all these things that we've never done before, working muscles that we've never exercised before. And it seems like a setup for failure, right? For especially for filmmakers like us. And we've just done, you know, she and I had just done hundred plus million dollar movies where we had time and we had toys and all that. Now we're going back to, we have toys, we have, to, we have some time, but it's some missing pieces on top of it, the story that we're telling. This difficult, very, very, very difficult story that's of our time and that we all deep, everybody on the set deeply remembers. If you're past a certain age, the thing that really touches me is that we were still able to imperfectly come up with an idea that was about the vision and giving people something to feel and experience story, performance, and visual-wise that I think is kind of getting pushed out of the door now. Like, for instance, a lot of these episodic things I see now, they all have a certain tenor to them because, visual tenor to them, because you don't have time. So you, you patina the film, we patina the films with optics. There's a lot of anamorphic, there's a lot of shallow depth of fields. A lot of things we end up doing in order to give it some extra vibe, some extra weight. Yeah. Or, you know, you know you can't, you know you don't have time to light, you don't have time to set 100 flags. You got to light it through one window. It's got to be single source. It's got to be available light. And they start to have that same thing. And, our, and ours had that. Ours has that same energy though that energy that came into the film for us comes from our collaboration anyway that's how we that's how we lit every film that we've done together because it's very organic to our process but i think the extra spice on top the extra little sauce on top was ava's it's that thing that she made really clear to us is that film works in interesting ways film could take this these these five men it could take their story and totally destroy them mm-hmm not directly, but it can destroy them by missing the nuance or missing the little thing in the background that, that gives a p- person a perception of them that's not true. Or all the little things that work out in film that kind of inform and color our perception of people on the screen, we have to be very, very cautious of those things. So when you set up that framework, that ethos, when you make the film, it trickles all the way down to or across to the cinematography. And so we were very, 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 because she made us and told us we have to be very, 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 very careful And again, it needs to have energy and vibe. It needs to have a certain photographic quality to it. But we have to make sure that that doesn't, that's not at the sake of story. Mm -hmm. That's not at the sake of this this, this story of these five men who were, we know, have have had a great injustice done to them. So I'm saying all that to say that that's the sum of all the stuff in the experience that Ava has had and at that point had had with or without me was so potent. You know, you look at somebody, you're looking at somebody, you're like, wow. Like I would, I, I, the thing, the thing that would happen to me constantly on when they see us is that if I, if I would, I'd be looking at this stuff, I was trying to work out, then I had an idea in my head and I would go to her and I'd express the idea. I would get this like rush. I would get this rush of like blood. Like when she said, yeah, 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 I like, yeah, let's do that. And nobody else, not, not. Other directors don't give me that same kind of at that point even now don't give me didn't give me that same kind of rush to hear it to see it to to suggest something and know that she was happy with it even when we're scouting I know one thing about her that I'm going to be able to follow through with that idea and it's not going to get censored before I try it like she's going to let me try it fail at it and I can go to her and say ooh that didn't work at all that was whack let's go back and redo it and she and she said and she's like yeah that she was like yeah I didn't I, I ain't love it but. Don't worry about it. We got to move on. Or, yeah, let's try to get it again. But that rush, of, which is ultimately a cinematographer's job, maybe it's a good way to close out. Our job is to make the director happy. We're there to make the director happy, man. 
the minute that we stop wanting to make directors happy, we should not be DPs anymore. We should go be directors. Hmm. We should go be carpenters or we should go be farmers. <laughs> it's our job to make the director happy. And there's nothing, there's no better feeling than suggesting something that genuinely is sparked by the energy and the intelligence and the intellect, the intelligence of the director being inspired by that idea, going into your own wheelhouse, adding your own flavor to it, then representing it to the director and the director being happy with that decision. There's nothing better in the world. And that's the thing that goes back to this childlike thing in us that we really all want to check into, which is what my children want to do. They just, my children just want to be with us and they want to make a, they want to, they want us to be happy. You know what I mean? They want us to be happy when they're, when they're six, three and seven months, they don't want us to be happy with the fact that they've, they've, they're not going to be morticians and they're going to be artists. It's not that kind of happiness. It's the happiness of I'm looking at you and everything I'm about is about you. And I want you to be happy because I want to be happy. I want to laugh and be cheerful and run around and play. And I want to be genuinely happy. That's what the cinematography thing is about. It's about that childlike thing. It's not about all the other super stuff that gets in between. Sorry, I mean, use that word, but all the silly stuff that gets in between of making people happy for other reasons that are just loaded with all the other baggage that, yes, your parents probably did to you, but <laughs> all the other baggage <laughs> that doesn't make sense, does not really make sense at that point. But this, this is that childlike thing that makes filmmaking fun. It makes filmmaking fun. It's like when you can lower your guard and go back and say, oh, she's happy without being like, <laughs> without being, without, and without feeling guarded about saying it. You know what I mean? Being like, oh, yeah. she's happy. That, you know, and turn to your crew. And let's get back to the crew thing. Let's turn to my crew and be like, thank you. Thank you for helping me make that person happy. This is the one thing about Ava that Ava has from the sanitation worker, the working class sanitation blue collar person who works with us all the way to the producer. She puts her hands on everybody. Everybody feels her. You know, you know what I'm saying? Everybody feels a connection to her. Everybody feels a connection to her process. They're deeply invested in her success. They want her to win because she does the right thing every time. You know what I mean? I can't say that about myself. I can't say that about most people I know, but she does the right thing every time. And so on middle of nowhere, it wasn't that profound. It was there, but it wasn't as profound. On Selma, it was starting to birth itself. Uh, when they see us, it was like, it's a movement. It's crazy. And that man, for me, is reason why that's the spice on top of that thing that has to also deal with all the constraints. But the spice on top of it is, I'm trying to tell you, every frame is forged with respect for every person on that screen, man. Every frame, you know what I mean? And there's no misplaced light. I believe that about that film. There's no misplaced light, no misplaced angle because every angle was scrutinized to the, at the sake, for the sake of preserving the humanity of these characters on the screen. And that's, that's, Ava Duner that's the Ava DuVernay ethos, man. That's the world you enter when you go make work with her. You know, and so I really got a chance to like bear witness to some things when making that film that it's just great to see a person you love and respect just grow into a force. Yeah, it's just like watching your child grow up. I mean, I'm not, she's not a child. I watch it, she's not my child or even a child. I'm more like her child, but watching her grow up, watching her grow to that place is, that makes you want to be like, well, what's it going to be like next time? I mean, next time, maybe we won't even use cameras. <laughs> <laughs> you know animated. I mean? like next time, animated, you know what I mean? Next time we see, man, you know. So that, that's, that's, the, that's the, yeah, man, that's the, I mean, that's kind of the gist of it. it was, that's a hard story to tell. And so I think we told it the best way we could, you know. 
and 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 and, and you know movies oftentimes undermine the importance of a m- moment or a subject matter they they cannot encase or encapsulate all of the things that a piece of literature or a good play or a sculpture or a single frame films are films are actually so 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 powerful but at the same time so 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 weak and just miniature yeah yeah fleeting very fleeting thank you thank you fleeting and so it takes a real craftsperson you can never you cannot say any of ava's films are fleeting none of them mm-hmm. none of them none of them none of them you get something out of all of them you get something out of all of them and they're never they're never an exercise in indulgence they're always an exercise in communicating something it may not be clear it may not be on the surface it may not be coming at you like selma but there's something there and that's that's wonderful to uh yeah. to see yeah that's sure very very for sure thank you so much for all your time i feel like i could talk to you for five days about no, this stuff this, it's this is so pleasure. much fun it's it's yeah. great we should make this a two-parter honestly uh because i don't want to cut pleasure. i don't want to cut any of it out <laughs> No, no, it's all good. But before we go, could you tell our listeners where they can see your work if they want to see your work or if you interact with people on social media, Instagram or whatever? Ah, oh, man. I'm not on any side. I'm not on any type of social media. You have like five hours more in every day than I do. Just just so you know. So that's good. <laughs> In these days, I'm getting more. I'm, good, I'm more and more off that. Go ahead, man. Go ahead. Ilya. I was just gonna say you're, you're not alone. I don't know what it is about your contemporaries, your your colleagues, the people who are uh, are doing this. A lot of people, I think, maybe because you're involved in the in the creation of so much stuff, they kind of just want to they want to be behind the scenes. They don't want to keep doing it. Like you know, the it, it, your personal time should be your personal time. It shouldn't necessarily <laughs> be about it. like oh how how much other stuff can I put out into the world? Yeah. So yeah. man, 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 I'm I'm totally off the grid. So you know. That, that's um, a good place to be. I gotta keep it. I got I'm I, I gotta keep that way. So you if, just gotta they, wait. You can... Yeah, and they want to find you. They can they can go. They can they can go to uh, movies. Stream some go to movies. The movies exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or if you or if you come to Baltimore, you know what I mean. Like I'm not in the phone, but it's no more phone books. If you come to Baltimore, you know, I'm at the farmers market every Sunday. Not anymore though. Not anymore. Uh, <laughs> no one's anywhere at the moment. <laughs> not anymore. No Charm no, City no. Farmers Market. We have farmers markets in L. A. Oh yeah. man. Nah, I know. Yeah, no Charm City Farmers Market kind of went away, but hopefully soon come, man, we'll all get back together and uh, be able to put our hands on, on one another. And I think that, you know, this time is a good time, ultimately is a time of reflection. And uh, what I hope comes out of this time is we cannot go back to the regular way. We cannot go back to the way we've been making them. There's some filmmakers in Baltimore that have a directing collective and they make films their way, relentlessly their way. And if you invite them to Sundance, and you give the director the award, don't take the director away from the, the crew. Leave them with their crew. Let them move to the next level with their crew. Because it's not just about making films and making people famous and getting people signed to agencies and getting them high-paid jobs and controlling them. It's about supporting communities. It's about supporting, which is what we're looking at right now. We're looking at the lack of support in communities. Mm-hmm. You really want to see this thing fold differently, turn out differently next time? Give people a living wage. Best way to give people a living wage is man, bring film, let people make art, especially film. It's an opportunity to really fracture some of these inconsistencies and inequalities, but we can't keep working under the same model where we take people away from their family and their crews and the people they made films with. Those are, you're ruining job opportunities, you're dismantling commu- creative communities. And, 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 and that's the reason why it sounds like you know, New York and LA don't look the way they used to do. But Baltimore, 
is still like raw and there's a lot of artists here and I'm hoping that on the other side of this their way of doing it will be empowered that Netflix will realize they can't make films without people, folks like this you know and that they're going to support these local collectives these collectives here that and put money in them and let them continue to make films that they can stream on their platform and let them be independent and be the kind of filmmakers they want to be and don't fracture it and I think that's that's what I'm hoping this new time will be will become because we're going to have to we're going to have to make films with our friends now I'm looking forward to it looking forward to it you know I think that's a fantastic way to leave it yeah thank you that, thank you so much I think much. that that's perfect yeah that, I can't think of a, a better way uh, Bradford thank you so much for being on the cinematography podcast it was, it was fantastic it's my pleasure long time coming long time coming my pleasure <laughs> All right, so that was Bradford Young. Uh, that was amazing. I can't wait to see whatever he does next. And uh, honestly, you know, just a, a really, truly inspirational conversation. I'm really excited that we got an opportunity to talk to him. Yeah, it was, it was fantastic. It definitely raises the bar for, uh, for our next few interviews. For sure. Whoever's next, man, be profound like that. <laughs> All right, so <laughs> Ilya, you know what time it is now. It's bill paying time. Let's pay those bills. All right. Uh, we got to thank our fantastic sponsor, Aperture, maker of many, many fine products, but uh, perhaps maybe best known for their, their LED lights. They have a new panel light, which is very similar to their other 300 series, like the C300D and the C300X. They now have something new they call the P300C. It's, I know, it just rolls off the tongue. So, but <laughs> mostly people are calling it the Nova because it's the Nova P300C. And this is a panel light. This is a flat panel light. It's an RGB WW, which means oh, that it gives you red, green, and blue and two flavors of white. So it's got a huge range of uh, colors that you can get from it from in the white spectrum uh, as low as 2000 Kelvin, which is very, very warm to as high as 10,000 Kelvin, which is very, very, very cool, very blue. And then all the other sorts of like, so just burn stuff. all your color gels, just throw them all away. You don't you'll never need another color <laughs> gel as long as you live. Well, uh, they, and they've also come out with a bunch of cool accessories for it, like a case and a softbox and things. Uh, and it's not terribly expensive uh, without a case. I believe it's uh, 16 99 and uh it starts shipping in a in a few months and there's pre-orders already now happening there's pre-orders over at hot red cameras i know that we're going to get some of the the very first of them because uh, we've been following the uh development of this product for a long time and we had a nice preview of it uh late last year over in our shop and it's going to really turn some heads there are some very expensive panel lights out there from uh big well-known established companies and the fact that this is a competing product at a price point that is uh, truly a fraction of what other people are doing it's gonna it's yeah it's gonna get a lot of attention and, and deservedly so Sweet. Well, uh, man, they are really just cranking out new products there. Like, it's unbelievable how many new products. Every week you have a new product from Aperture. They're just, it, se- uh, it seems like it. It really does. So very anyway, yeah, it's, we uh, already uh, got a bunch of pre-orders. I think that there's a bunch more that are coming in. It's going to be really big. And yeah, if you want to check out the specs, the specs are over at hotredcameras.com. We're probably, uh, I think, actually next week I have to it's, I'm doing my first event, uh, actually, with Aperture at a remote location with eight to ten other real human beings in the same room. I think Sounds we'll terrifying. Be, I know we'll all be very distant, but at the same time, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're gonna we're gonna be demoing this stuff for some people. It was, cool. it was nice knowing you. 
Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. I'm going to go with the uh, the the very fancy respirator and, uh, you know, <laughs> wave with the bottom of my foot. And, Just uh, <laughs> get one of those like old skin diving suits, you know, with like the fishbowl head thing. I was thinking more of sort of like those um, <laughs> cyberpunk sort of like deep sea diver, uh, you know, Hell crazy. Yeah, like steampunk. <laughs> steampunk. Totally that's steampunk. what it was. Not cyberpunk. Yeah. Steampunk. That's exactly yeah, it. Yeah. So. <laughs> no, that's that's you, you should definitely do that. And now, short ends. Hey, Ben, it's our famed uh, short end time for the show. They are famous. Uh, They're quite famous. They're world famous. What uh, What is your uh, obsession this week? So I stumbled across an amazing documentary on Amazon. And when I say stumbled across, Amazon knew I was going to watch this and kept like serving it up to me and be like, huh? Huh? So on Amazon Prime, there's a documentary called Making Apes, The Artists Who Changed Film. And it is a documentary sort of about Tom Berman and John Chambers. John Chambers was the guy who created the makeup effects for Planet of the Apes. They interview a ton of amazing makeup effects artists, including the uh, legendary Rick Baker, Hmm. who, uh, you know, is one of my uh, inspirations my whole life. And and, uh, one day I'll tell you about the awkward moment when I met him. But they, they talk to tons of makeup effects artists and they kind of show how what a giant leap uh, makeup effects took with Planet of the Apes. Because it's, it's like really hard to imagine it today. But in 1968, they released this movie where respectable known actors like Roddy McDowell were, had their entire heads covered with makeup. And uh, it it did change the way we look at movies and, and you know, sort of fantasy, sci-fi, stuff like that. They talk a little bit about the entire origin of the movie and how Rod Serling had written the original script and the book it was originally based on, all that stuff. But it, it really focuses on the changing face, if you will, of makeup effects. And part of why I'm fascinated with this stuff is, as you know, I used to be a makeup effects artist. That was sort of how I started out. And so I love seeing stuff about that process but also you know uh, John Chambers who if anyone saw Argo uh, a few people saw it because it it might have won best picture yeah John Goodman plays John Chambers in that Mm -hmm. movie and one guy you don't really think about it because you know there were famous people like uh, Jack Pierce or Lon Chaney who did groundbreaking makeup leading up to that you know you've got your Frankensteins and your Wolfmans and stuff like that but Planet of the Apes kicked us into a, uh, a different level of makeup effects, one that I would say we're still sort of in, that gave rise to people like Dick Smith, who did The Exorcist, and Rick Baker, who did, you know, probably most famously an American Werewolf in London, but also did like every amazing film for years and years. Rob Bottin, who did The Thing and uh, the Howling and... and RoboCop and Total Recall, like all of those people, all of all of that kind of makeup effects trace right back to Planet of the Apes. And this movie sort of is a really interesting capsule into that. Uh, that's awesome. I would totally watch that, especially um, since I actually just got done watching uh, today. And, and this slides right into my uh, short end, a movie which has tons and tons of real uh, creature effects and visual effects and makeup effects, not just a bunch of CG, which is uh, Zathura. Have you seen Zathura? Yes. I, you know what? I think it's about as close to a perfect kids movie as you can get. And I got to say, my, my kids completely loved it and they loved 
at least as much as the latest sort of computer graphics uh, Jurassic Park movie that they they saw. Well, that was this a John was, Favreau movie, wasn't it? It was John Favreau, and I swear, I think the movie is like it, it also features a, a young uh, Joshua Hutchinson and uh, Kristen Stewart, and uh, Tim Robbins has got a small part in it, and Dax Shepard, and the the movie just really really does a fantastic job and I, I you can tell it's all shot from mostly shot inside of a studio but man the the effects in it and everything that that goes with it uh, is just spectacular it really really uh, it, it i feel like it hits all the visual cues and numbers and things that you want from any sort of science fiction or effects type of uh, type of movie they, there's something about the reality of that that's those sorts of makeup effects like they have these lizard men creature and they creatures and they just look so fantastic they, they look you know even the best cg doesn't doesn't look like the real yeah, thing. i mean there's they they kind of cover that a little bit in the documentary about the belief that cgi is going to replace makeup effects and uh, i mean like obviously cgi in the reboot of planet of the apes completely replaced makeup in that but what they did was something that would have been physically impossible to do with makeup, which was to make these, you know, the proportions and everything of these apes really anatomically correct. So they no longer look like a, you know, anthropomorphized person ape. They look like an ape. They look like a real ape. But that being said, I actually just edited a, a reel for my friend Jason Collins, who uh, owns a company called Autonomous Effects, and they do The Resident, and they did a lot of stuff on House. They did makeup effects on the on the Blade Runner uh, sequel and stuff like that. Like they do a lot of big stuff, and it's like uh, they do amazing work that you could not. In, I can't imagine how you would do what they do with CGI. It wouldn't work. It would be overly complicated. It's like way smarter to do it uh, on set. And I, I don't think that it's just being a purist uh, for me to say like, I, I don't think makeup effects go away. I think like everything else, the technology gets better. The stuff starts to look more realistic and the quality goes up and it becomes a more competitive world. Now, like when I was 16 years old reading Fangoria magazine, all those makeup artists were all like rock stars. They, mm-hmm. they really were rock stars to me. And I feel like that's fallen away a little bit. We're not like excited as much about the individual artists who are doing this stuff necessarily. And a lot of the people who are like at the top of the game are companies like spectral motion that maybe lay people who aren't like way into the business. They're not as aware of that. And my friend Jason's company autonomous, they do a lot of big stuff, but to me, that's actually in a way a good thing. I mean like, you know, yeah, I want to, I want to have hero worship for people like Rick Baker and Rob Bottin and Dick Smith and, and those kinds of, of people. But at the same time, I think it's uh, it's very competitive and just the quality of the work is, is is just astonishing when you see it really well done. And people like uh, filmmakers like Guillermo del Toro know how to like perfectly combine the two. Yes. And I think that, you know, of course, digital is not going away. And I think that the way that you use digital can further enhance your makeup effects and i don't i'm i saw that zoic studios was involved in zathura which i was a little bit surprised at the when i yeah. saw it in the credits and they're mostly known for for doing a lot of digital but like all the creature effects and giant prosthetic effects was uh, stan winston so it's like you know he <laughs> they do they do pretty well themselves and that pantheon of, of list of, of things i mean that's uh it's no wonder it's i mean that that's why it looks so great. I think it's funny that both you and I chose something visual effects related for uh, or, or <laughs> practical effects related for our, for our uh, short well, ends this week. I but. think practical effects is is something that doesn't necessarily get its due. It might be interesting to get like I, I'm sure if I asked Jason Collins to come on the show, he probably would do it. And he's worked on, again, like some really, really big stuff. 
And I think that the perspective of people who are doing that kind of work is fascinating because it's a little different, but they're all storytellers and they're, and they're figuring out ways to, to tell these stories. Like, again, going back to this Planet of the Apes thing, when you look at the Planet of the Apes makeups today, it's not that they're not good. They're really good. But like, you know, we've come so far since then. We use different materials. We use silicone instead of foam latex. And the silicone is translucent, like real skin. And so we're used to stuff being orders of magnitude, more realistic looking just on its face. But, you know, you just see like how many people, how many makeups they had to create, how like and how revolutionary what they were doing was. And the risk that uh, the studio was taking by making that movie, the studio was in bad shape. I think it was Paramount was in bad shape when they made that movie. And it was it was a gamble. If that movie had tanked, it might have taken them down with it. And so they were gambling on uh, Chambers and his crew to be able to pull off what they pulled off. And, you know, they revolutionized like a tiny section of the industry in a way I would say the way movies like Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park revolutionized visual effects. All right. So Ilya, where can people find you on the information superhighway? Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, it's a series of tubes. Uh, you can find it me is. over at hot rod cameras, uh, HotRodCameras.com. I'm there. Uh, pretty typically monday through friday but uh yeah i'm also in but but keep your social distance wear a mask wear gloves you have some purell well we're 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 still keeping people at the door right now if they just pop in there if they're they're just showing up it's like um not quite yet but Uh, if somebody were to like for instance show up and demand that you give them a t-shirt would you socially distancedly give them a t-shirt Probably. Yes. All yes. Right. We, we've got, we've got a little, you know. All right. So, but that's an improvement because like a month ago it was like, don't go near the place. Like, you know, don't go yep. to old, old man Friedman's haunted <laughs> camera shop. Uh, Cause everyone's, everyone's dying of, of the COVID. And now it's like, uh, come here, you know, knock three times and back off 20 feet. Yes. Or, or you can just call us from the parking lot. That, that seems to work pretty well. Most people call us from the parking lot and then someone comes out in glove and masks and takes care yeah, of yeah. whatever you need. Yeah. So, uh, Ben, where can people find you? Where, where are you? Uh, I am, uh, you can find me at benrockonline.com and all my social medias and stuff are all there. Uh, I'm on Twitter all the time at Neptune salad. Connect with me. Uh, several of our listeners have connected with me on Twitter or on LinkedIn. I know LinkedIn is not a sexy social network, but I'm on there and it's feel effective. free to connect. It works. You I'm happy to feel free to connect with me. Some people have even showed me their reels, their DP reels. And I've, I have watched and responded. Nice. So, Ben, uh, let's thank some people. Uh, well, let's first thank uh, Kay's Alatraxi. And I'd like to thank Kay's personally for helping me troubleshoot my computer yesterday. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're your Hackintosh? Hit his, yes, yes, because he helped me build the computer that I use because <laughs> it is a Hackintosh. But, uh, yeah, and Kay's, uh, a preview of maybe next week's short end for me is he's got me watching this one filmmaker's YouTube page. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you more about it later. But uh, this person who is a very established actual theatrical filmmaker, but who also does a lot of stuff on his own and uh, uses Blender. I've never really talked about Blender. I don't know anything about Blender, so I might be about to go down a rabbit hole of Blender. <laughs> so we should thank him. Go to musicbyks.com and you can find everything K's Alatracci. And I think he has uh, hats and T-shirts and bandanas that you can buy, too. Really? No. Okay. <laughs> Does Blender make smoothies? They don't. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, let's thank uh, our producer, Alana Cody. Alana, thank you for uh, for putting together Bradford Young. I know that uh, that this yeah. is a long time coming. And that uh, was that was some work that went into just arranging and coordinating everybody's schedules and making that happen. So yeah, it's pretty awesome. 
And uh, and let's uh, thank, of course, our editor, Ben Katz. Ben Katz, ben. thank you for, for making us not sound like complete idiots. And staying safe up in Seattle, I hope, Ben. Yes, indeed. Stay, stay, stay safe, Ben. We need you. <laughs> stay safe because we need you no yeah, other yeah. reason yeah, it's it's all personal like very selfish you know <laughs> so uh, your, your, your health no <laughs> no we love ben ben's the best so i i'm interested to see also as production starts picking up our we we've kind of had uh pretty amazing access to several prominent cinematographers over the last 10 weeks 12 weeks are we about to start losing them to work in yes the short answer is yes and all those live streams that people have enjoyed, like the different things that have been happening. Oh, oh and by the way, if you're still listening to this part of the show, uh, I'm going to be on a Sigma Instagram live stream thing on Friday. And we're going to have a, a little preview of someone who's going to be on the uh, our podcast coming soon. They worked on a little movie called Top Gun. And uh, yeah, that'll be uh, that'll be a thing. Sweet. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you again for listening uh, this far, if you have. And we will see you next week at the Cinematography Podcast. Ciao. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.